This is Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg Radio is everywhere. Always accurate and precise. Bloomberg's really one of the places that's reporting facts. Your communication capabilities are wonderful for our business. I'm Ed Baxter. Denise Pellegrini is off on this weekend edition of Bloomberg Best. We bring you highlights from the Qatar Economic Forum in Doha, featuring conversations with Dave Calhoun, the president and CEO of Boeing. Well, in our world, you know, we have backlogs that go out five, six years. And so if the backlogs would suggest supply constraints that far, that means it's even further. Plus, TikTok CEO Shoshi Chu on his company's advances in data protections. Ensure that American data is stored on American soil by an American company and overseen by American personnel. And this is a, truly an unprecedented project. Bloomberg Best, Bloomberg's best stories of the week. Powered by 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries around the world. Newsmakers from the worlds of business and finance gathered this week in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum. One of the big names attending, Steve Schwartzman, chairman and CEO of Blackstone Group. Now, he sat down with Bloomberg's Francine Lacroix for a wide-ranging interview touching on politics, inflation, and geopolitical risks. Steve, when you look at the world economy, we talk about inflation, we talk about fragmentation. What does it mean for deal-making? I know leverage is going up but things could be getting cheaper. Is it conducive to more deals? Well, I think it takes a while, Francine, um, in terms of the balance between what sellers want and what buyers want. And, and usually when you have market declines, uh, it takes about a year and a half uh, before the sellers to forget what their companies or their assets used to be worth. Uh, and by two years into that cycle, uh, you start uh, seeing uh, a lot of activity. We're already seeing uh, activity in Europe, in real estate, for example, uh, because people become forced sellers uh, given the dramatic increase in interest rates uh, and then uh, financial institutions wanting to provide less leverage. Uh, it's, the owners of assets have become structural sellers to reduce their leverage. Uh, so we're already seeing uh, really terrific opportunities there. And it's just a matter of time uh, before that happens in other places in the world. So what kind of real estate um, things are you, you know, trying to buy? I know there's a lot of concern about commercial real estate and where that ends up. It could be the next big thing to fall. What does that mean for private equity money? Well, I, I think um, you're, you're seeing a lot of pressure in commercial real estate in offices. Um, and you know, in the United States, for example, there's 20% vacancy uh, in, in offices and another 20% sort of empty because people are working from home. Uh, so, so that subcategory of real estate uh, is showing a lot of strain. On the other hand, the kinds of things that we own, uh, which are warehouses, where it's about 40% of our assets, uh, those are going up uh, double digits uh, in terms of uh, rents, uh, and uh, when people's lease expires, they're pricing up 40 to 50 percent because rents have gone up uh, a lot in that area. Uh, so that's a very strong uh, uh, concentration. Uh, and we're seeing the ability to buy continually uh, warehouses increasing what we do. Uh, and we're the largest owner of the world privately uh, of that asset class. 
And so it's important to be really selective uh, when you're looking at buying uh, real estate. Uh, we also have data centers, uh, which have had a huge explosion along with uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, and, and that's become an extremely interesting uh, investment class. Steve, how is the growing influence of Middle Eastern sovereign wealth funds actually reshaping private equity? Well, I, I started coming to the Middle East, I guess it was 1991, uh, and uh, a lot of the, the countries actually had just started funds, or the funds weren't even investing in limited partnerships. Uh, and now the Middle Eastern sovereign funds have revolutionized uh, uh, capital and providing capital for all kinds of different uh, projects and investments in funds and co-investments. Uh, and, and it's one of the most vital parts of the world because the, the amount of money that need to go into the individual countries uh, is less than the amount of the income uh, that keeps increasing the scale of the funds. Uh, there's a, been an enormous uh, professionalization uh, of the investment process uh, over the last 30 years. Uh, and, and so it's fun uh, to be dealing with everybody in that part of the world. How do you see it changing? We worry about fragmentation, about being in a very polarized world. Certainly US-China versus China is taking a lot of headlines. What does that mean for the flow of capital? Well, I, I think capital is still flowing. Uh, trade has been uh, affected. Uh, and there's the start uh, of, of capital flows uh, starting to be affected. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's a net negative uh, for the global economy. Uh, and, and I think everybody is concerned about that. Uh, and even geopolitically, you know, the kind of muscular uh, uh, politics only goes so far uh, before it starts uh, creating uh, very adversarial uh, types of relationships, which are not good for any country. Steve, you mentioned certain possible deals in Europe. Is there anywhere else where you see leverage still being advantageous enough for you to, to go in quite aggressively? Well, I don't think, uh, Francine, it's the leverage uh, because we can always borrow money. It's a little more expensive. Uh, the expense of money isn't uh, as important as the goodness of the company and the price. Uh, and we still haven't gotten prices low enough uh, in, in the United States. Um, uh, you know, people are still somewhat optimistic, but uh, if you look at what's happening with the economy, uh, U.S. is only 1% growth uh, of the GDP. That, that's in real terms. Uh, and the Fed has raised rates uh, sufficiently that it's really going to start uh, slowing the economy. That always happens uh, on a delayed basis. So, so I think the buying phase uh, will have to wait for a bit uh, in the States. Do you worry about a policy mistake from the Fed? Well, I think everybody worries about those. They, they you know, they missed uh, the inflation. We were talking about inflation publicly, she's uh, close to a year before the Fed was, and then they called it transitory. And we could see from all of our companies that was not the case. Uh, and so they've overreacted. Not, I shouldn't say they've overreacted. They reacted late, uh, and they. Uh, reacted in an exceptionally strong way. Uh, there's still a debate as to whether to pause now or, or continue uh, to increase. I think Jamie Dimon yesterday said he could see six, six uh, to seven 
percent rates instead of the five percent area that's possible hard to tell the economy actually in terms of inflation we think is doing much better on the inflation front but the way we look at what's happened with the US economy is we think inflation is in the low three percent category not you know four point nine percent as publicly reported and the reason for that is that the shelter category which is over thirty percent of the index is is done on an average as opposed to exactly what the costs of rent are now and if you looked at the costs of rent today not an average and put that in the CPI you'd be around three two three three so so the Fed in effect is having more success than the market thinks is the market the focus so much on cuts by the end of the year that they're miscounting or misjudging this higher for longer interest rate environment that could really change the way markets operate that's my view usually when people say things they they mean them you know I think because the Fed was late to the party in terms of increasing rates they want to make sure that this is not an Arthur Burns moment where they release the pressure too quickly and then they have to do something else again so so I would expect them to stay where they are through year-end although frankly no one in the world knows the right answer to that they're they're educated suppositions and we'll see what happens but but you know there's still a resilience to the economy that exceeded what people expected Steve at the same time you know we had the banking crisis in the US it was short-lived but are there any legacy issues for some of these regional banks what does it mean as regional bank retreats are you looking at opportunities to pick up lending market share anywhere in the US yeah well we are very large in terms of providing credit at Blackstone and you know we called it a golden age for our credit business that's Steve Schwartzman the chairman and CEO of the Blackstone group speaking with Bloomberg's Francine Lacroix at the Qatar Economic Forum in Doha coming up more from QEF and a look at the future of air travel if you have a Bloomberg terminal you can see all the Bloomberg best stories at best go I'm Ed Baxter and you're listening to Bloomberg best This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. Denise Pellegrini has the week off. We continue bringing you highlights from the Qatar Economic Forum in Doha. Boeing warned that supply constraints in the industry could drag on for more than half a decade, delaying deliveries to airlines and hampering the industry's rebound from COVID. The company's CEO, David Calhoun, appeared on a panel alongside Qatar Airways CEO Akbar Al-Bakr, moderated by Bloomberg's Francine Lacroix. Let me talk first about supply. It seems that it's a shortage, actually, of new fuel-efficient jets rather than demand that is aviation's number one issue. I mean, that's pretty incredible. Did, did you see this coming? <laughs> uh, without a doubt, um, and Akbar and myself have been around the industry for a very long time, we had our COVID moment when we wondered whether there would ever be a demand uh, for airplanes. 
Uh, fortunately, the healthcare profession got us out of that situation faster than most of us expected. And then the re-ramp and the desire to travel has never, never been greater. And the industry is struggling with how to respond to that demand in a very significant way. And so I, I can see supply constraints for a very long time. What's a very long time? <laughs> well, in our world, you know, we have backlogs that go out five, six years. And so if the backlogs would suggest supply constraints that far, that means it's even further. Um, our job is to resolve them and increase our rates so that we can meet all the demands. But, but today, supply constraints sort of dictate Mr. Baca, what does that mean of how you run the airline? So what does that mean for orders and how does it change the equation going forward? Uh, first and foremost, we have orders. We don't place it, uh, you know, yesterday. <laughs> we, we place it very much in advance. And uh, because of the supply uh, uh, chain constraint that uh, my friend uh, Dave just mentioned, uh, we too are suffering as an airline because they need to produce airplanes. They need to get their uh, supplies. We need to run an aeroplane, operate an aeroplane, and an aeroplane is very intense in spares and supplies to fly those aeroplanes safely. And we have a lot of constraints. We have, at times, aeroplanes grounded because uh, there is lack of engine parts, sometimes there is lack of avionics because it has, our orders have, that have been placed maybe a year ago has not been delivered as yet. And this all is the consequences of the pandemic mm -hmm. that, uh, that happened first time in, in, a, in, in a century. And uh, we were very ill-prepared. And now, because there was such long lockdowns and people got paid for staying at home, half of them, they don't want to come to work. <laughs> so what does that mean for travel demand? <laughs> Well, as you can see, the consequences of that, uh, not only on aviation industry, but all over the, the industries that uh, depend on, uh, on human resources. We saw that Ryanair order, which was quite incredible. Do you yes. see any other orders well into like 2033? Are they just going to get longer and longer as people try and put orders in faster and quicker? Yeah, it's... Uh... Demand is stimulated by two things, and it's pretty simple. Um, first is, do people want to travel? We're all experiencing a reboom in travel, uh, particularly with respect to tourism. Business travel's not yet back, but it is steadily progressing, and I have very little doubt that it will. So that's number one. Number two, and the thing that strikes an even bigger demand on the airplane providers, is fear that you're not going to get an airplane. So, Qatar Airways has been good and has been ahead of most of the ordering patterns for years and years and years and years. This isn't a new phenomenon. But not everybody is. And if you get a little bit behind, yeah. you, you have to place an order for an airplane six years later. Um, it strikes fear, which means anybody else who wants to wait that long, I mean, all of a sudden they start lining up. And I think we have a little bit of that going on. So do these market dynamics, were they behind the decision also to not start this all-clean new airplane that would counter the A321neo? No, um, all-clean as in sustainable? As in, no, as in like new from scratch. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I, 
I've, I've been in aviation for several decades. Every new airplane family, the requirement to make the billions and billions of dollars of investments is that it be at least 20%, if not 30% better than the last airplane. Uh, we will do that, but we have to prove out the technology suite that will deliver that before we design the airplane. Uh, and I think in our industry, because of some of the constraints, both in propulsion and the design of the wing, um, it's going to be at least until the mid-2030s before we, and in this case, I'm just going to assume uh, my competitor, will call out that airplane. I would like to give him some advice, but I will keep Please. myself constrained. Uh, so I don't become very controversial. Yes, I get lots of that advice. <laughs> What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh, you know, I, I, the, the best piece of advice in this industry, in my view, is to keep, keep the long, the medium and the long term in mind. Because uh, that's how this industry was formed. Develop, develop, mature technologies, one step at a time, one step at a time, and then introduce really important groundbreaking yeah. Airplanes. I, I know you give advice. What, what was the best piece of advice you've given, actually? Well, you know that, uh, like uh, uh, Dave mentioned, it takes a long time to develop uh, a new type of airplane. Uh, they have uh, just uh, developed uh, the 787s. They developed the 777X. Airbus developed the, the NEO. They developed the 350, the 330 NEOs. But you know, these are all on an old technology platform. Yeah. And my advice as a CEO would be to both of them that now they need to start looking now, not wait for one to start before the other starts, to start looking at uh, a new platform that will be sustainable and will be acceptable to the general public who are making unnecessary noise about emissions from the types of aeroplanes we operate today, though the general public don't realize that aviation is only responsible for 2.6% of the global emission, CO2 emissions. But we are right at the top of the criticism chain. So it is very important that both aircraft manufacturers, actually the third one too, which is Embraer, the Brazilian company, should now think about introducing something new into the industry. Is yeah. it more expensive to be more sustainable? Does it drive up you prices? Know, uh, will it drive aviation prices overall? I think, yeah, I think it will in the interim years. Um, first of all, we can prioritize what would achieve net zero in 2050 for large commercial airplanes. Mm -hmm. um, really, the only significant contributor by way of change in technology is sustainable aviation fuel. Mm -hmm. um, that's the only thing that moves the needle between now and then. There will be advanced technologies, hydrogen included, that have a reasonable chance of delivering sustainable aviation in the second half of this century. And there will be a lot of development that will work toward that end. That was Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun and Qatar Airways CEO Akbar Al-Bakr speaking with Bloomberg's Francine Lacroix at the Qatar Economic Forum in Doha. 
Coming up, more from the QEF will bring you a conversation with Shoshi Chu, the CEO of TikTok. If you have a Bloomberg terminal, you can see all the Bloomberg Best stories at Best Go. I'm Ed Baxter. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Best. This is Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. Denise Pellegrini has the week off. We continue bringing you highlights from the Qatar Economic Forum in Doha. In this segment, we focus on the tech sector. TikTok is, quote, on track with its undertaking to have all U.S. user data hosted and overseen by American software company Oracle. TikTok Chief Executive Officer Shoshi Chu tells Bloomberg's Caroline Hyde that Oracle has begun a review of the app's source code and is now the default destination for U.S. user data. Well, TikTok is not available in mainland China today. Uh, as we said many times, the Chinese government has actually never asked us for U.S. user data, and we will not provide, even if asked. Now, beyond that, we have built, over the last two years, um, something we call internally Project Texas. And what it really is, is to ensure that American data is stored on American soil by an American company and overseen by American personnel. And this is a, truly an unprecedented project that none of, our, uh, none of the other companies in our industry have ever attempted. And we believe that we have taken steps that are above and beyond what our industry has done to protect the safety of US user data, which is very important. Where are you with Project Texas? Because there's been some reporting, and I know that you've come out and said very soon Oracle will have the unprecedented access to our data, or indeed to your, the ways in which of your source code. But that's not now. When will Oracle be able to enact this sort of unprecedented overseeing and transparency of, of your company? Uh, project Texas is a very complicated project. And a lot of the elements of the project is already in place and operational. Uh, for example, today, by default, all US data is stored in the Oracle Cloud service already, in the Oracle Cloud infrastructure, and no longer in our own service in Virginia and in Singapore. You've already done that transfer? It's already done by default, correct. Um, separately, Oracle has begun the, source, the, the review of the code, although it's, uh, as you can understand, you know, a complicated project that will take time for us to finish the details. So it's on track. Oracle and ourselves are working together with the US government to finalize the details of Project Texas. There's also, I believe, Project Clover in Europe, which yes. is a similar idea. And what's so interesting is your industry is grappling with this issue at the moment. The fact that we're sort of almost getting a nationalization, a sovereignty argument for data. And we've just seen Meta, which I know the artist formerly known as Facebook, where you were once an intern, has just been issued a fine for keeping its data in Europe or not, as the case may be, that's what's argued by the EU regulators. What do you make of this almost deglobalization that's occurring in technology? I think you, this is a very important uh, topic that you are uh, you're touching on. Now, on the one hand, the internet is really built on this idea of global interoperability. And, the, I, and the, this idea that talent from around the world 
can connect very seamlessly mm. with each other. And I think we've all seen the benefits of a very connected global internet over the last few decades. And I continue to be a big proponent of that. I think there's so many important elements of this global interoperability that needs to be preserved. Now, at the same time, um, there are conversations now in the EU, in, in the US, and in other countries around the world about what they call data sovereignty, you know, making sure that there are certain elements of the data. You know, data is a very big term, so we need to make sure that we are very specific about what we are talking about. You know, certain elements of protected data, for example, are stored and handled in a particular way in each um, region. And that's something that I believe we are ahead of the curve. That's TikTok CEO Shoshi Chu. Now, sticking with technology, while at the Qatar Economic Forum, Bloomberg's Caroline Hyde also caught up with Peter Chernin. He is co-founder and partner at TCG and former executive at News Corp. They discuss the new business of pop culture. How do you think the world of cable is currently standing up to the disruption of streaming? I think the world of cable is unfortunately done. Okay. Um, you know, big, it's, big it is on its way out. You know, I think it has probably declined 40-ish, close to 50% from its peak. And I don't see any scenario in which it doesn't keep going down. So. And <coughs> from that perspective, therefore, does it go down by merging, by consolidating, by people eating one another and them all getting into the streaming business? Well, I think that they are two separate things. I think the people who are in the streaming business are already there. Mm -hmm. So I don't think you're all of a sudden going to see sort of third-tier cable channels merging and becoming so streaming. So we're done with streaming births. This is it. We're I believe this is it. I believe it's, it's too costly. The mode is too big to enter. So I don't think you're going to see lots of new players. When it comes to the streaming giants, what amazes me is actually how international they are in the respect that are you seeing many Middle Eastern streaming companies pop up? You're someone who <coughs> intimately knows this region. You know QIA, been working with them for a long time. How, how do you think streamers are ending up being deeply global companies and all US-based, basically? Well, I think it is two things. One, I think it's fundamentally capital, which is they, just, they have the capital and the investment and the will to grow globally. And then secondly, I think it's a combination of two things locally, which is one is lack of investment. But two, there's also a regulatory question around this, which is streaming over the last seven or eight years has been allowed to grow globally with very, very limited regulatory constraints. Okay. And not, in my opinion, not necessarily to the better mm. of some local territories. Will regulation <coughs> change, do you think? Could it? Will it ever be able to oversee streaming in that way? Well, I think you'll see some regulation change growing in Europe. Growing, but weirdly, you know, they were sort of asleep at the wheel the last Why? five years. I don't know. Because the one thing the Europeans historically good, were good at was regulation. <laughs> and, they still are leading the charge when it comes to thinking about right. AI regulation. But they somehow didn't, but they were very strong regulators of content businesses because they were protective of their own content businesses. And they have allowed the big streaming platforms to go in there and largely take over the media businesses in each of those countries. And, you know, you'll see it happen over the rest of the world unless certain areas decide we're going to do things to, I'm not sure you should try and keep them out, but you should make sure that there are certain 
requirements for local programming, that right. there are certain things that happen to protect your local programming. So for someone like you, who is actually creating and investing in content <coughs> when perhaps some of the juggernauts are pulling back on their budgets or content, is there rich opportunity in thinking about international content, not just US English language? Well, you know, when we, when we established North Road nine months ago, mm. you know, at that point, we were the leading independent television movie producer with shows like Planet of the Apes and Ford versus Ferrari and Greatest Showman, etc. We had just bought what I think is the leading documentary company in words and pictures. Um, but we said two things. We said that the two, we want to keep investing in, in scripted, but we said the two greatest areas of growth we believed would be nonfiction because it's the easiest way for those platforms to save money yeah. as they're cutting back. And we are, I think, the producer of the number one nonfiction show in the world, which is Love is Blind. We'll get to that in a minute. Right? And then the second thing we said is we believe international will grow faster than domestic. So we have just bought a Turkish production company. We're in negotiations to buy a Mexican-Spanish company. And so we are investing in international content because it's an area we believe in. Middle Eastern? Well, I think Turkish is in some ways the most prominent Middle Eastern content. Yeah. You know, the thing that really attracted us to Turkey was, A, it's a big country, 130 million people, um, good economy, but B, that their content exports extremely well both to the Middle East and to Latin America. So we, thought, we, we looked at it as an opportunity to get into the Middle East. That's Peter Chernin, co-founder and partner at TCG, speaking with Bloomberg's Caroline Hyde at the Qatar Economic Forum in Doha. Coming up, from technology to geopolitics, we hear from General David Petraeus about the return of the multipolar world. If you have a Bloomberg terminal, you can see all the Bloomberg Best stories at Best Go. I'm Ed Baxter. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. Denise Pellegrini has the week off. We continue now bringing you highlights from the Qatar Economic Forum in Doha. We take a look now at some geopolitical risks impacting the globe. Bloomberg Editor-in-Chief John Micklethwaite had the opportunity to sit down with former CIA Director General David Petraeus. They focused on the Ukraine war, Russia's relationship with the world, and the possibility of a complete U.S.-China decoupling. Do you see China as the biggest risk now? Well, it's, I think, the, the continued rise of China and then the friction that has evolved between the U.S. and China, the West and China, frankly, uh, is the single biggest issue that has led to, uh, to this. But certainly the resurgence of Russia, the brutal invasion of Ukraine, uh, all of these are factors that have, again, returned us to an era of great power rivalries. One more thing on China. Do you think, when you look at China, do you, and you talk to a lot of companies about this, do you now see a decoupling with China as inevitable? No, not at all. In fact, we think decoupling is not possible. Uh, in fact, last year, uh, the U.S. and China had the, the greatest trade that they've ever had. Uh, China is the number three trading partner for the U.S. behind our two continental, uh, yeah. same you know, U.S., Mexico, Canada, trade agreement partners, uh, again, of Canada and Mexico, uh, and we're the largest trading partner for China. So again, decoupling is not, not feasible. 
Um, selective decoupling is taking place, however. Uh, De-risking, I think, is yeah. how the, the EU head terms it and so forth. And so certainly there are various issues, there are various sectors, there are these that involve dual use, military as well as civilian, uh, certain high technology areas. We think that there will probably be an outbound investment regime established in the United States. I mean, this is what the KKR Global Institute focuses on perhaps more than anything else, is trying to understand where is the relationship between the West and China going. Because, again, geopolitical risk, when I first joined KKR and established the Global Institute, this is what we did when we invested in the former Yugoslavia for yeah. the first time, or Africa, or even Mexico, Colombia, Chile, Philippines, various other Southeast Asian countries. It wasn't what we did in the major economies of the Pacific or Europe or what have you. Now it is everywhere, uh, and there are implications for what's going on for almost every investment that takes place. They all touch in some way uh, either some China relationship uh, or also the implications of the Russian war on Ukraine. Surely the biggest risk is Taiwan. Do you, what kind of probability do you put on the Chinese? I think it is still unlikely. Um, we get a vote, if you will. We, the, the West, collectively, the U.S. Uh, deterrence is what we are seeking. Uh, and deterrence is founded on two elements. Uh, a potential adversary's assessment of your capabilities on the one hand and your willingness to employ them on the other. It's incumbent on us and of our allies and partners together uh, to make sure that we are transforming our capabilities, hardening, improving resilience, all the rest of this in the Indo-Pacific region, as it is now termed, and then also making sure there aren't doubts about our willingness to employ the capabilities we have without trying to be provocative. There's no, no desire to mm. provoke something. The desire is to prevent it, to deter it, to dissuade it. And I think, again, that in general, that is working. What is the big, le what's the main lesson, one last thing, what, what's the main lesson that we have learned from Ukraine in terms of warfare? First of all, I'd point out, this is not the future of warfare. Mm. This is the Cold War turned hot with the addition of drones and smartphones, internet access and social media, gradually seeing more long-range precision munitions than the rest of that. But I think that's, that's hugely important. That's former CIA Director General David Petraeus speaking with Bloomberg Editor-in-Chief John Micklethwaite at the Qatar Economic Forum in Doha. And that's it for this hour of Bloomberg Best. If you have a Bloomberg terminal, you can see all the Bloomberg Best stories at Best Go. I'm Ed Baxter. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now.